you would give him the words to speak and us the ears to hear what you would have to speak to us this morning. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. I'd like to invite Mark up to read the scripture. Good morning. I'll be reading from the first letter of Peter, chapter 5, starting with verse 5b and reading through verse 11 from the English Standard Version. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thanks be to God. pray together. Father God, we come to this time and we sit under these words and uh, Lord, as, been, as has been said a couple of times this morning, I recognize that we come from all kinds of different places in a room this size. Uh, some of us here are full of joy. Others of us here are full of worry. Lord, some of us are here um, having a very easy time entering into thanksgiving and, and praise and worship of you. Others of us are here and our hearts feel so cold, so hard and so broken. And Lord, I recognize further that some of us are here full of faith and believing in you. Others of us are here uh, with uh, a faith that feels as though it is barely hanging on by a thread. I pray, Father God, that whatever place we find ourselves in today, whether we are here in joy or in sadness, whether we are here uh, with much faith or with barely any faith at all, I pray that you would give us grace to see that in the way that matters the most, that we all ultimately come the same. Uh, with an overwhelming and an unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, and to be changed by you. Would you open our eyes to the presence of Jesus Christ who is with us here today? Would you show us how he is at work to change us, to bless us, to strengthen us? We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. It's great to be with you. My name is Darren and for couple, about three more weeks or so, I am serving as your pastor. If you're visiting with us today and you hate the sermon today, don't worry. <laughs> you won't hear you hearing any more of it very long. Um, and so, yeah, I'm making a big transition. Our church is in a, a season of transition. And, you know, when you're in a big transition in your life, what do you do? What do you do when you're in a big transition, right? Well, one of the things you do is you reflect. You reflect on, on the past and you ask yourself, you know, what has God done what have, what have I done? What would I do differently? And, you know, my, my son and I have been kind of reminiscing over what I would call Ironworks bloopers. 
write some of the really stupid stuff that I did. <laughs> you know, when I was thinking about, you know, what are the, what's the biggest mistake that I made uh, in planning the church? And I was thinking about some of the fun stuff, right? Like when we started, I thought it would be a good idea to worship at four o'clock in the afternoon, right? And there was hardly anyone, no one else thought this was a good idea. And, uh, you know, so we, we did that for a couple of months. And then, you know, I want to really commend Jeff Rosinski. Jeff Rosinski told me, he said, Darren, We'll come if you change the service time. And, you know, I was so interested in Jeff and Sarah coming that we just we changed the service time just for them. And, uh, you know, that was kind of fun stuff. And then I thought about there was a time I, I actually tried to go to a drug house in Philadelphia to minister to someone. You know, and that is, a, you know, just want to tell you, I've learned in 11 years, that's not something you should do. <laughs> like if, if, you know, just wait until the next day when they're back home and then go minister to them. Don't try to do that. And I was thinking about all the fun stuff, but... You know, God was really good to us, and, uh, you know, th- those were fun mistakes that we can laugh about now, but what about, what about mistakes that were more serious, right? What's the greatest mistake in a serious way that I made planning the church, and what's, th- what's one of the greatest mistakes that you will face during this leadership transition as I've been reflecting on it? And I will tell you that I have no doubt at all about my greatest mistake, and I also don't have doubt about the greatest challenge that you will face during this transition. Uh, And it's something that that our tradition in particular uh, uh, does not do the best at. And it is something that uh, I myself uh, dealt with and it's something that I have seen you deal with as well. And that is underestimating the power and the presence of evil in your life and in the church. Right, when's the last time you sat down and thought about the work of Satan in your life and what he might be up to today? Right, I wonder, when's the last time that you sat down and you thought about, I wonder how Satan is at work in my life and in this church? And I will tell you, you know, I, I'm not here trying to condemn you. I'm here telling you that uh, as a young church planter, I remember uh, meeting with someone who had been you know, further ahead of me. And he said, Darren, you will be shocked by what spiritual warfare actually is in your own life and in your family. And I can remember sitting there thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, and I, and I just pushed it aside. Um, and as the hands of ordination were laid upon my shoulders, right, about a, almost, it would be 11 years ago in uh, December, as the hands of ordination were laid upon my shoulders and as we got into the audacious work of trying to start a church from scratch, I will tell you that I have zero doubt in my mind that that was the single greatest mistake that I made as a pastor and as a church planner. And, you know, as you guys go through this transition, I also have no doubt in my mind that this is the number one greatest risk that you face is the underestimating of evil. And in this passage Mark read to us, uh, we have here Peter's instructions for how we can respond and how we can deal with what he calls the lion. And it's interesting, you know, I, I've been getting, uh, my wife has been telling me, you know, I only have two sermons left, and she's saying, you know, are you ever going to get to David, right? Like, you've been talking about David, but you haven't really, like, gotten to the main passages about him. And I said, you know, as it turns out, I'm not. <laughs> We'll be leaving that to Sam and Josh. And so sorry about that. You know, perhaps, uh, perhaps I'll eventually preach on David. But I, I was so into the uh, introductory material that 
I, um, I wanted to stick with that. But, you know, it's interesting because one of the uh, qualities of David that's highlighted in his story is that here was the youngest child, right, of, of his brothers, and he was the one who was unafraid to go and deal with the lion, right? And I want, I want you to try to put yourself in that position, right? You're, you're tending to the family business, right? You're overseeing these sheep. You're trying to make sure that they pasture and that they provide for your family as best you can. And there is an absolutely ferocious animal who is seeking to devour your entire well-being, right? Your entire livelihood. And again, I want you to put this at stake, right? Imagine your entire livelihood is at stake. And yet the enemy that you're facing could potentially be lethal to your life, right? And David, being the youngest, he's the one that, that says, yeah, let's go. I'll, I'm going to go deal with him. Similarly, David is also highlighted, right? Because the story repeats itself in Israel. In Israel, they have this warrior, Goliath, who is, you know, he is the lion of the Philistines. He is the one who will devour you. He is the one who towers over everyone. He is the one uh, whom experienced warriors just quake upon seeing him. And David, who's really just an assistant at this point, he says, yeah, I'll handle it. No problem. Let's go. Right? And that's one of David's kind of superpowers is he's, he's a man of profound courage. And friends, I'll tell you that uh, as I've been meditating and reflecting on this passage, what, the pass- what Peter is trying to do for you is he's trying to help you appreciate that in your life and in this church and in your family exists a pursuit of you by evil itself who was personified as a roaring lion, right? And look at the language of this passage. You know, we can't miss this. He says this, he says, verse eight, be sober-minded, be watchful, right? Be aware of, of the presence of this enemy. Your adversary, right, your enemy, the enemy of your soul, the enemy of your joy, the enemy of this church, what does he do? He prowls around like a roaring lion. And I want you to, I want you to get this, okay? What he's saying is that as you are serving with Phoenixville Refuge, as you are conducting home group, as you are lifting your hands in worship, as you are serving the poor, as you are ministering to one another, as you are hearing prayer requests, as you are sharing a meal at the home group table, he says, you need to understand that there is a creature who is hiding himself for the purpose of having you for supper. And I'll tell you, friends, that you know, as Reformed people, this is perhaps our greatest vulnerability is that we do not appreciate this adequately. And I did not appreciate it adequately myself, I can tell you from personal experience. So the heart of my sermon here today is trying to help you, and especially during a leadership transition. The leadership transition is a time of vulnerability for the church. What does that mean? Right? If you are, if you are a predator, right, and you're, you're preying on someone, when are you going to do that? Answer, the time when they are most vulnerable. And, and, and friends, it is no, there is no doubt in my mind that Satan is real and that he will attempt to use this time to have this church for supper. So what do we do about that? How do we defeat the lion? So I want to make a few observations from this passage uh, in hopes that uh, this will be preventative to you. 
And I'll tell you too, by the way, friends, that, you know, it's interesting, as, as I was reflecting upon my greatest fear for the church, actually was, was giving thanks because the Lord has provided all of you who are exceptional. He has provided leadership who is exceptional. And I see an enormous amount of skill. I see an enormous character uh, in, in, in reference to God in our leaders and our liturgists and our pastoral team and our staff and our home group leaders to see all these good things, right? And that is, is a wonderful grace of God. And if we can be aware of our enemy and if we can respond to the presence of our enemy in accordance to this passage, I believe that there is no limit the amount of fruitfulness for this church over the next 10 years. So that's what, I'm, that's what I'm interested in today. So how do we respond to the threat of the evil one? I want to make a couple observations with you about it. Number one, verse 5b, uh, in order to respond to the presence of evil, the number one area in my experience where evil shows up is in an unwillingness of Darren Pesnell to humble himself in a situation of conflict, right? Number one place where evil has, has grabbed a hold of my soul, and I have watched it happen to you as well, many of you, is when you enter into some disagreement or conflict with other people, particularly people in the church. There's something about the church that gives this like a superpower, and you respond, you are quick to respond with an element of pride, Right? I just want to, I want to put this out there, and, I, and I've seen this happen recently, by the way. Right? I've seen an uptick in this, which is not surprising given the situation that we find ourselves in. What's the very first thing that Peter says? He says, and again, I believe this entire passage is built around his interest in you defeating the lion. The entire passage hangs upon the concern of the lion. And the very first thing he says is this. If you're going to be successful, if you're going to defeat the lion... You have to embrace humility, right? You have to embrace humility. Another way to say it is you have to resist the temptation to act in pride, okay? You have to resist that. And I'll tell you that, you know, as soon as conflict happens, one of the things that I see actually is normative Right? I see this as normative, I see it in the church, I see it in the business world. The moment conflict happens, the, the normal, ordinary response is not to be self-reflective and to ask yourself the question, what am I doing wrong? The normal response, the ordinary response, the way that it usually happens is that we respond defending, accusing, right? And explaining away things about ourselves. And Peter says, you know, and it's interesting, this theme for Peter is, is a real strong theme in his teaching. And if you read the gospel of Mark, you'll see that Peter fails in this over and over again. And what's really interesting about the gospel of Mark is that the gospel of Mark was written by this man, Mark, but it was really authored by Peter, right? Mark was Peter's assistant. And so Mark, when you read his telling of the gospel story, you have to understand it's really coming from Peter's voice. It's coming from his stories. And when you read the gospel of Mark, Peter fails more than he does in all the other gospels. It's all about his failures, particularly his failure of pride, right? And what's happening here in this passage is that Peter is writing to you, and he's not writing to you about theory, 
he's sharing his own story. And he's saying, I, I was the man of pride. If you read Mark, you can see it all over to the absolute climax of his pride when he rebukes the Lord Jesus. I mean, listen, you know, I've seen some pride here in the past. <laughs> I, I've, I see, I've encountered some arrogance in myself and in some of you, but I have never, <laughs> I have never seen anyone rise to this level, right? That's next level. To rebuke the Lord, to say, Jesus, I'm sorry, but you're getting it wrong, right? That's, that's next level pride. And that is the place that Peter is writing to you. That's where he's saying, he's saying, clothe yourselves with humility. And I want you to think about this word, clothe. What does it mean? He's saying your identity should be an identity of concern for others and willing to consider where you might be getting it wrong, right? And, and, and a resistance of the urge and the impulse to act in pride and concern for your own reputation. And friends, I'll tell you that you know, as, um, as I've struggled with this myself, as I've had moments and, and situations and sometimes seasons of getting this wrong, I will tell you that um, as, as I've embraced this in, to some degree, right, and I'm not there, but if I've embraced this to some degree, I'll tell you, it's actually really refreshing, right? When you are willing to be misunderstood or you're willing to be wronged, it's actually really freeing because, you know, you don't have to maintain uh, you don't have to maintain an image of always being right. And actually, once you embrace that, it's actually really freeing, and it's really relaxing, and uh, it, it really sets a good tone for relationships. Because when you're in a relationship with someone and you have to always be right, you have to always be correct, you have to always be the one who wins the argument, it's exhausting, right? But Peter says this, he says, if you clothe yourself with humility, look what the promise is. He says this, you will invite the grace of God into your life. God, he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When you act in arrogance, right? When you say, oh, I've got to win this argument. I've got to be the one that's right. I've got to prove my case, right? What, what's happening in that? Answer, God is against you. God is opposing you, right? God is, is saying, I'm going to use my resources to counteract you. But when you respond in humility, he says, I'm going to give you grace, right? When your reputation is tarnished, he's like, I'm going to give you grace for that. I'm going to help you in that, right? When you, when, and when sometimes your reputation is tarnished because you really did get something wrong, you know what he says? I'm going to give you grace for that too. It's going to be okay, right? You are going to be a trophy not of success all the time but a trophy of grace. And friends, I'll tell you, that's where you wanna be, right? And, and the sooner you embrace that, and the quicker you embrace that, uh, the more joy you will have. So that's the first thing he says is, he says, you have to relate to one another's with a perspective of humility. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says, I wanna get to, uh, begins in verse seven. He says this, he says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And this is really the flip side of it. He says, first thing is, be humble towards others. Don't, you know, don't act in arrogance. Don't have to be right all the time. The second thing he says is, develop an effective practice of prayer. Right? And I'll tell you, you know, talking about mistakes, number one mistake, underestimating evil. And the, you know, the second mistake goes right along with it, not starting our prayer meetings sooner. Right? 
And again, you know, I lecture you all all the time on prayer and going to hear another one today because I love you, right? And I want to just talk to those of you who, who never come to prayer meetings or, or almost never, you know, and I, maybe you have a good reason and I'm going to judge you a little bit, <laughs> okay, to be honest, right? But I want to just plead with you and say this, God has designed prayer to be one of the primary tools that you you resist Satan with. That's what it says right here in verse six, right? He says, take your anxieties. We all have anxieties. Whether you come to prayer meeting or not, you have anxieties, right? Take your anxieties and learn to release them to God. The way that you do that is in prayer, right? And and in our corporate prayer meetings, what we're trying to do is we are trying to build unity in the church by saying that we are going to take the the needs of the church, the missional needs, and we're going to cast them upon God, asking him to handle them, right? And there is an effective way of praying, right? What is that way? It's where your anxieties actually uh, reduce on your soul, right? If you're carrying anxiety this morning, perhaps, perhaps what God is saying is learn to pray, right? Learn to release them to me. And I'll tell you that, you know, I, I, I did not, um, I was not the one that had the idea for the prayer meeting. Um, and it's my second biggest mistake is not starting it sooner because the moment that we started it, we started to experience God's provision, right? And in your lives, I want to tell you, if you're someone who doesn't know how to do this, I invite you to talk to me, right? I'd love to, I'd love to pray with you and I'd love to meet together and say, hey, let's take your burdens and let's bring them before the Lord in a way that's effective. And if you don't learn how to do that, right? It's interesting, you know, with prayer, um, I find that most people are legalistic about it. Most people say, Darren, I want to learn to pray so that I'm a good prayer, right? And I'm, I, I always respond to them like, that's a terrible reason and I hope you don't succeed. <laughs> that's all I say. I'm like, that, you're, that's a terrible reason and I really hope that you don't. The Lord forbid you succeed because then you will be an arrogant prayer, and that gets back to the first point, right? I want you to learn to pray, not so that you can pat yourself on the back, right? I want you to learn to pray so that you can be happier, so that you don't have to bear your anxieties, right? That you can be freer. And if you don't know how to do that, I mean, I invite you to, I invite you to talk with me. You know, let, let's meet together and pray. Let, let's talk, t- talk about the things that you're worried about, and let's learn to cast them before the Lord, and that's what it says here. He says, verse, um, excuse me, verse 7, he, he brings this up in the context of evil, right? And the church has understood that every time Satan is at work, right, the way that we defeat him, the way that we counter him is by learning to pray and by practicing prayer, right? So uh, that's the second, first th- second thing. First thing is we embrace humility. The second thing is we learn to pray. The third thing that we do is that uh, we embrace community. So look with me in verse 9. He says this, resist him, which is what he's been talking about, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Right? And this, you know, this is the other barren soapbox for the day, is that the design of the church and the way that this church will succeed is when you resist Satan in community with others, right? When you resist Satan in community with others, when you get to the place in your relationships with others where you can be real, where you can share what you're 
actual needs are, which takes a lot of trust and a lot of vulnerability. When you can get to that place, and then you can have a brother or a sister say, let's bring that to the Lord together. And you can have an effective time of prayer in home groups, in you know, men's group, in women's group, in, in times of one-on-one connections with others. When you can have an effective time of prayer doing that, you will see God's blessing. You will see Satan resisted. You, you attempt to do that on your own. You're, you're hiding a secret sin that no one else knows about. And you're like, I just got this, right? I want to tell you, as your pastor for three more weeks, you don't. You don't have this. You're not going to succeed. God has designed you to, to be in community. And he says it here. He says, look, the way that we resist him is that we resist him in community. We resist him suffering together. We resist him knowing that we are resisting him, not as individuals, but as a brotherhood, right? So that's the next way that we do it. And then the last way that we do it, and and I think the most profound and and striking and wonderful part of this passage is in verse 10. And this is what God says to you. He says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Listen to the language of those words this morning. He's saying God himself will strengthen you. Right? God will not, out, God will not delegate this task. He will personally And and listen to the language of it. He says, after you have suffered, what? A little while. There is a limit to the suffering that God has ordained for your life, right? And and that's one of the best ways to to resist the devil is saying, Satan, I know that you're at work in my life. I know that you're at work in my family. I know that you work in this church, but your days are numbered. There is a limit to the number of days that God has permitted you to mess with me. And God is doing it for a reason, and he will personally, he will personally respond to your life. He will restore the years the locusts have eaten. He will repay a hundredfold every lost relationship, every financial loss, all all the junk that happens to your kids. He will repay that 100-fold, not outsourced, but he himself personally. God will himself do these things. And friends, the last way that we respond to the lion is that we cling to those promises. We depend on those promises. We hold God to his word. God, you said that I would suffer for a little while. You said that you will restore me. You said that you will confirm me. You said that you will strengthen me. You said that you will establish me. And what is it? And then what does it say earlier? I believe you. I will be strong in faith to you. And uh, he promises these things. And it's interesting. There is an interesting connection to one of the letters of Paul that I want to close with, right? We talked earlier about clothing ourselves in, in humility, letting our reputation be one of humility, right? What, what does that remind you of, I wonder? Anything? What does that remind you of? We have, we have an ironwork celeb in the house, Lisa Gerard. We're excited for that. Um, yeah, you know what it reminds me of? Philippians chapter 2. As Paul is entering into uh, a place of worship by which 
theologians have wrestled with, you know, some of the most foundational doctrines of the Christian life. Um, He says this, he says, Christ himself did not count equality with God thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant and becoming obedient even to death. Do you, you hear what he's saying? He's saying the identity of Christ himself became the identity of a servant. Right? The identity of Christ himself became the identity of a servant. And if that is true for Christ, if that is true for Christ, right, what does it mean? It means that God works through humility. Right? It, it means that God is at work through your humility. That God is at work in those things. And that God overcomes evil through humility. That is how Christ overcame evil, isn't it? That's what we, we celebrate at Easter, what's called the Paschal Homily, which is celebrating death trying to swallow Jesus. And when it meets him, when, it, you know, John Chrysostom says, when death lays its eyes on Jesus, it is overcome, right? It thinks that it was taking a man, but it realized that it, it itself is being taken that Christ is defeating death. And so what we're going to do is we are going to welcome some new members.